0: Hey, this is Josh Howard and you're listening to the Forgotten Math podcast. Yeah. Forgotten Mavericks. Huh, forgotten, Mavericks. Yeah, forgotten Mavericks. Yeah. Forgotten Mavericks. yeah. Forgotten Mavericks. Let's get it.
1: This is Mike Frayler, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Forgotten Maverick podcast. For this episode, we're joined by former radio voice of the Mavericks, Dave Barnett. Barnett was on hand for the 1982 through 1988 seasons, some of the most formative years in Mavericks history. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm excited to share it with you. Thanks for listening, and now here's Dave Barnett. Hi, Dave. Yes, Mike. Yeah. Hi. How are you doing tonight?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm doing really well. Thanks for calling into this. I really appreciate it, I mean, and I'm excited to, to talk to you.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm ready when you are.
1: Cool. So, yeah, you, um, well, I'd like to welcome you to the uh, the Forgotten Maverick podcast. Like I explained to you in our in our messaging, um, this is just a podcast that I created catching up with, with Dallas Mavericks from the past. And um, in addition to former players, I also like to throw in some other notable people from Mavericks history. So I decided to reach out to you and I'm glad you were so responsive and I'm excited to to hear your story and your, and your memories from, from your time with the Mavs back in the eighties.
0: Well, I don't get that many opportunities to talk about the Maverick days. Um, More people (laughs) ask me about the Spurs days, but I have nothing but great memories about the Mavericks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, and one thing is that a lot, in a lot of my preparation for, for, talking with especially former players I try to do research and find particular things and you know I couldn't find too much about about you and your time with the Mavericks other than you know when you started and and when you left and um, but one thing I did find is just how how young you were at the time when when the I believe in 1981 when you when you officially became the radio voice of the Mavs so I mean that that's got to be a pretty unique story how did like what events transpired for you to be able to become the radio broadcaster. I believe it was 23 years old.
0: Yeah. So I was 23. That's um, the incredible. Youngest, yeah. The youngest to <laughs> me at that time. And then the very next year, Kevin Harlan came in uh, hired by the Kings and he was a little bit younger than me. So I held that honor for one year, <laughs> but um, I had been working at KRLD in Dallas. Um, actually the summer before my senior year at North Texas, Oh, wow. And started out as a minimum wage uh, drone, basically writing leads to tape stories, taking in network feeds, and um, not really covering that many things. Just kind of you know writing and editing, uh, low man on the totem pole. But um, Brad Sham was there and had a nightly talk show, and quickly found out you know, my ultimate career goal was to work in sports and he had a need for someone to produce his talk show, cover some things he couldn't get to. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, he deputized me and then pretty soon I was the number three sports guy at KRLD. And they eventually added midday sports. I did two games that he couldn't make, um, back when KRLD was the home of SMU basketball, I'd done North Texas basketball, some high school basketball in college Edward, Texas, at KNTU. So I had a working knowledge of play-by-play and as much experience as I could get at that young age. And then I had two games that Brad couldn't make, SMU at Vanderbilt, Houston at SMU. So I had those tapes. And after the first year of the franchise, when Mark Holtz was the voice, he was quickly hired away by the Rangers. And that was about six weeks before the start of the second season. So it was late summer of uh, 1981, so the Mavericks were really stuck with local people. If, if they'd had even a month or time for a search, I would probably have had no chance at all because they could have looked nationwide and they could have found people who had actually broadcast NBA basketball. Yeah. Uh, I had a few college games, but they were limited to local people who had done basketball and were not under contract. Well, I was local. I had done basketball. I was far too unimportant to be under contract (laughs) at KRLV. And so um, on that basis, I got the job at that uh, extremely young age. And it took me pretty much that entire first season, all of 81, 82, to catch up to the speed of the NBA game. Uh, Oh, I can imagine. It was was like going from um, a really good uh, bicycle to a rocket ship, um, and I, <laughs> I, I had to develop uh, a completely different vocabulary and a, a, a way to describe things instead of in ten or fifteen words in two to five words. Uh, but the Mavericks were good enough, and Ram Sanju uh, was running the franchise from day one. Was good enough to give me that time to develop and basically mm-hmm. you know roll the dice on me hoping and thinking that eventually I would grow into the role and they gave me time to do that. And so that's how it came about and ended up um, from year two, uh, my seven years there, they got better every year. That was the fun thing about it is every year they would take steps forward to the point that my final game of the Mavericks was game seven of the Western finals in the forum in 1988, where they took the Lakers deep into the fourth quarter.
1: That's incredible. What a run. I mean, you know, those were some exciting times back in Reunion Arena, and it's it's actually a little bit before my time. Um, I'm, I'm 32, and I, I became a Mavs fan in the, in the mid-90s, but as I've been doing this, I've been just familiarizing myself. You know, I, I know bits and pieces about the 80s teams and the names and certain events, but I've really enjoyed talking to um, players that were around at that time. And I think some of the guys that, that you were calling games for that I've spoken to have been guys like um, Scott Lloyd, uh, Charlie Sitton, Dale Ellis, Uwe Blob. Um, those are probably the, the main ones from, from your time. And uh, I've really enjoyed my, my conversations with them. It's uh, I just Dale Ellis is the, the most recent episode that I actually posted just a couple of weeks ago. Um, that was a fun one.
0: Yeah. Uh, he was a first-round third same year they drafted Derek Harper. Um, yep. You know the the foundation of the franchise was their ability to fleece the Cleveland we Cavaliers for um, a trove of first round draft picks. The, the Cavaliers <laughs> were by Ted Stepien, and um, he was desperate for bodies. He was he was trying to keep their doors open basically, and so. The Mavericks were able to trade expansion picks for first round draft picks to the point that the NBA stepped in after three or four of those deals and passed (laughs) a rule about, um, they actually passed a rule about trading number one picks in consecutive years because um, the Mavericks had not only their own picks, but picks they'd gotten from Cleveland. And so, um, first round 1981, they had the first overall pick, Mark McGuire. And um Rolando Blackman, who, if I remember right, came at a pick they got from Denver when they traded the original first round pick, Kiki Vandeweghe, to mm-hmm. Denver. He decided he did not want to play in Dallas. And so every time he came to play in Dallas, he was booed every single time he touched the ball. Seventeen thousand people booed him. Um so but he brought Rolando Blackman, who, you know, was really, I think, on the whole, a better player than Kiki. Uh then they they had um multiple picks in other years where they got Dale and Derek the same year. They got that much Uwe who Bill Wennington all in one draft. And so that enabled them to build the roster really quickly and mm-hmm. uh, build some depth. And then, um, the, the best first round pick of all Roy Tarpley came in 1986. And so he really completed them. That was back when the league was predicated on, uh, big men, uh, completely different than today. Three-point shots were something you took in desperation when the shot clock was running down. There were no plays except the end of a half or end of a game that were really set up to get a three-pointer. Everything was about pounding it low. And the teams that had great centers were the teams that went deep into the playoffs, like the Lakers with Bill jabbar like the Celtics with Robert Parrish, like Mm -hmm. the Rockets with first Ralph Sampson, then they added Kim Olajuwon, and the Mavericks never had Uh, a center that could match up with those guys. They got James Donaldson who could match up with them physically. And then when they drafted Roy, uh, he was an element that really no one could deal with, especially coming off the bench. He won six men of the year in his second year. Um, He would come off the bench and get 2010, sometimes 20 rebounds. And no one could deal with that. And that's what almost took down the Lakers in that Western Conference final in 87, 88 is, as I explain, had uh, the bodies to go toe-to-toe inside, but something that the Lakers did not have, someone who could come off the bench, a seven-footer, who could go 20-20 mm-hmm. in 25 minutes. Um, so they owe a debt of gratitude still to Ted Stepien for being such a horrible owner of <laughs> uh, the Cavaliers. And, you know, people look back and say, in hindsight, well, wow, look at all the people they passed on. They passed on Isaiah Thomas. They passed on Carl uh, Malone is the big one because they went with that last instead of Carl Malone. Um, and that's true, but they still um, put together in a uh, very rapid-fire fashion uh, one of the best four rosters in the league by the time I was done with my years with them.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty incredible that, that you were there just at such a formative time for the franchise and, you know, making the playoffs, I think, six out of seven years and five straight years at one point. You know, there were a few things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I'm assuming you were on hand for the Moody Madness game in, in 1984?
0: I was. And uh, when I tell people about it, at this point, very few people know what I'm talking about unless... <laughs> Unless people were around then, and then um, they all have very vivid memories of it. But, yeah, that's definitely a highlight.
1: What are some of your your memories from from that night? I was hoping to be able to catch it on on TV earlier this year or sometime last year. It was supposed to be on NBA TV for like a Mavericks day, and then they ended up putting some other game. But it was in the lineup, and I was excited to watch it, and then they ended up swapping it out. So I've never gotten to see it, but I'd, I'd be curious to hear what your memories are from that evening.
0: Well, I think the tape of that game um, is – is is if it's around, I'm not sure who has it because uh, television was so different then, and that whole series was so bizarre with Seattle. But that game was pay-per-view, and uh, I'm not sure how many, if any, tapes exist of it. There must be one or two, but I'm not sure who has them. Mm-hmm. But the whole series was um, – emblematic of the lowly status that the NBA had at that time. It was played in, I think five different buildings. So started out reunion arena, went to Seattle, their home games were at the Kingdome then, but they also played at the Seattle center Coliseum, their original home. And then they also, I can't remember if it was that year or another year where they played Seattle, but, they lost both of the arenas and they had to play at the University of Washington's gym, <laughs> Pavilion, um, because I mean, it's in, it's impossible to imagine today that an NBA playoff game wouldn't have priority on any arena,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but it, it didn't in Seattle and it didn't in Dallas. So game five came back and a tennis tournament, the WCT tennis tournament, world championship tennis was no longer exists, but, It had priority, and the reason it had first dibs on Reunion Arena was when Reunion was built, the mayor was Robert Folsom, Lamar Hunt was uh, the man behind WCT Tennis, and um, one of the ways that Robert Folsom was able to get it built was to commit that WCT would have priority every year when they had their tournament. And the Mavericks were not expected to be playing in the playoffs, much less Game 5, deciding yeah. the name of a playoff series. And so when WCT booked their dates, they thought, well, there will be no conflicts here. But sure enough, uh, Game 5 had to be moved to Moody Coliseum, which was exactly 8,000 fewer seats than Reunion, which held 17,007, Moody then 9,007. So they had to figure out, you know, the the priority, the season ticket holders to cram that many people in. So that Mm -hmm. already made it bizarre. And then the game itself, it looked like Seattle was going to win. They had a sizable lead I think eight points, two minutes to go. Uh, Mavericks rally, Rolando Blackman had a huge mid-court steal, breakaway dunk. Uh, They end up forcing overtime and then they've got a lead, in the final seconds and seattle is going to inbound the ball and the referee mike mathis comes over to the timer and tells him okay don't start the clock until you see me drop my hand in other words the signal mm-hmm. he was telling the bobber don't look at the ball hitting and inbounding uh, Sonics player and started based on that. Watch my signal because there was, you know, so little time remaining. He wanted to make sure that there wasn't any um, extra time given um, the Mavericks or time taken away from the Sonics. So, timer is looking right at Mike Mathis. Ball is inbounded. The timer does not see Mike Mathis drop his hand. I don't know if he was. Shielded by a player, but he took that advice and that instruction very literally so he didn't start the clock. (laughs) But the crowd doesn't notice that. They see that the ball is inbounded, shot goes up, no good. Um, Mavericks win, they race off the court into the locker room, and then I see the referees come over to the table. And pretty soon you could figure out, oh, well, there's some question here. I don't know what it is. I mean, it was obviously just inbounds and a missed shot, but there's some apparent question with the clock. So that goes on for 14 minutes. Wow. And they eventually have to bring both teams back, and I'll never forget when the PA announcer, Kevin McCarthy, announces why they're having to replay this uh, <laughs> as the loudest 9,007 people could boo. And then it's also going to be Seattle ball. <laughs> I don't remember exactly the reasoning behind that, but somehow it went from uh, game is over to, no, we're going to give Seattle one more shot. So they redo the final couple of seconds. Shot again goes up no good. Finally, celebrate for real. Yeah. Uh, so everything about that series was incredible. And then I found out later that during the tennis match at reunion – There were so many people who were listening to my radio broadcast (laughs) in the arena, watching the tennis and Jimmy Connors was playing at the bash and he knew what was going on. And at one point he went over and sat, I guess in a changeover, he sat in the stands and took someone's earpiece to listen to the game. (laughs) And every once in a while he was asking fans to give him a score update. So it was, It was being played out at Moody, but it was definitely being being followed um, at Reunion Arena. So um, that's unimaginable today that a playoff series would have to bounce between that many buildings. But, um, you know, the NBA was building its way back from um, really second-tier pro-league status from (laughs) the late 70s. uh, That was into the mid-80s where they were still fighting that.
1: That's incredible. Thank you for sharing so much of your memories from that. You know, I, I really enjoy hearing things like that. And, and I don't think I'd heard um, so much detail about that before. So I, I really appreciate you going into depth about that. So you said you were with the team through that Western Conference run, uh, Western Conference finals run through 88. Um, what ultimately led to your departure to move on to to other opportunities, like w- with the Spurs or, or anything else?
0: Well, um, the Maverick staff was very young. Norm Sanju hired people that did not have a lot of experience, but that he thought had a lot of potential. And one of those people was Russ Bookbinder who worked in marketing and uh, the business operation. And the Spurs hired him to run their business operation to be uh, basically VP. Um, and he made me an offer to come down there to San Antonio. They had, just hired Larry Brown, he just won the national championship with Kansas. Mm-hmm. They had drafted David Robinson the previous year, but he had his Navy commitment, so he wasn't with the team yet. But it was obvious this is going to be a, a team on the rise really quickly. Yeah. So that was one factor. I love the city of San Antonio. That was another factor. But the biggest factor was um At that point, more and more games were being televised. When I first started out, there were about 15 games that were televised. So most people followed the team by listening to me. Mm -hmm. And I did the TV, but uh, the Spurs did every game on on television. And in fact, they did a simulcast, which um, most people today don't even know existed, but it was one broadcast carried on both radio and TV. So I went down there to do everything, to be the broadcaster. I didn't even have a color partner on the the simulcast. There were some over-the-air games carried on the ABC affiliate, and their anchors were my um, partners on those games. But uh, I could see that the business was going more and more toward television. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get better at television, um, franchise on the way up city i loved uh, i was going to work for someone i was already a friend with so all those factors really but but number one it was the the chance to expand and um, branch out from radio into doing more television
1: well yeah i mean definitely sounds like a good opportunity um, that, that's pretty cool and like you said you moved in to a pretty exciting era of of spurs basketball once uh, robinson got there um, just a, a couple more questions. I know you went into pretty good detail about the Moody Madness game, and I really appreciate that. Is there another game you'll never forget from uh, from your time calling games for the Mavericks?
0: Uh, yeah, there are a few. The first time they beat the Celtics, um, a lot of things went into that. Larry Bird had one of his best games ever. He had 50 points. But um, the Mavericks had put together that team that would eventually, you know, make a run and get close to making the finals. And they were able to, and it it was one of these things where you could tell the Mavericks were getting better, but the Celtics were, you know, the team. They were the beast in the East. And they just knew every year it was going to be them and the Lakers in the finals. So the Mavericks really never come very close to the Celtics. But the first time they beat them, uh, at reunion, they took Larry Bird's best shot, 50 points, and still won. And it was punctuated by a uh, length of the court pass, a James Donaldson dunk at the buzzer. And uh, so I wrote that game, and then based on that broadcast, I, I submitted or WDAP, the flagship, submitted that broadcast to um, UPI competition, and I won best play-by-play broadcast in the state of Texas for that year. Oh, wow. That's really neat. That was pretty memorable. And the same thing the next year, I believe, uh, a playoff game with Denver. Um, And so those two, I still have those plaques on my wall. So those two, um, there was another game. um, Back-to-back, if I remember, Bird followed in to – reunion by the Knicks and Bernard King, and he had 50 points. So (laughs) back-to-back 50-point game. Uh, And then, yeah, my very first game in the altitude in Salt Lake City, and I'm I'm on the flight, just, you know, my head is sort of spinning. I can't believe this whirlwind. Here I am, 23, and I'm working in the NBA. And so uh, I, I prepared for that first game harder than I ever had anything in my life. And, in the altitude, I'm almost out of breath by the end of the pregame show. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not running up and down the court. Yeah. I'm just – I'm putting a little bit too much intensity, I guess, into the broadcast, and I'm, I'm gasping for air, and they haven't even tipped it off yet. So uh, it was a learning process for me too. But, um, you know, while I look back at it, at a, it as a whole – um, so many great people to work with. A lot of them I'm still friends with. Um, so many great people who happen to be their players um, that I don't get to see that often. When I do, it's like no time passed at all. Rolando Blackman is one.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: I used to carpool to the airport with Brad Davis. He and I <laughs> you know, were really good friends. Uh, and, and several others. Um, when I was uh, my first year, I believe, or maybe the second with the Spurs, and Roy Tarpley had come back from one of his suspensions. And this was his first game back. He was overweight. His face was puffy. You could tell that um, you know he had not been living in the gym while he was waiting for his suspension to yeah. pass. And comes out for pregame warm-ups. He sees me, comes over, big smile, handshake, hug. and then he just effortlessly has 30 points, 20 rebounds. <laughs> he was just toying with the Spurs. Just, hey, I think I'll throw up the three-pointer. The the kind of shot that Dirk Nowitzki became famous for, mm-hmm. you know, three-pointer straight on. Roy was just throwing that up for fun because basketball was so easy to him. It was just so effortless. Wow. Um, so, you know, that – that was when I was working for the Spurs, that was a game against the Mavericks and it's, it's just a performance I'll never forget. It's such a tragedy that his career was derailed. I think and yeah. he was taken, you know, at far too young an age. Uh, he's right there with, with dirt. I think the two best players the franchise ever had. So chance to see that steady rise, you know, from um, the early years, into the late 80s and to see, you know, that team develop and and get to the point where it looked like they were ready to take the next step and maybe supplant the Lakers. And it didn't happen, and it took quite a while, you know, for Dirk to get there and for them to finally get the championship. But uh, but it's fun to look back and and remember being there uh, in the formative years.
1: Sounds like it would have been a lot of fun. And like I said, I've really enjoyed connecting with – with guys from that time and, and hearing some of their, their anecdotes and, and their memories. Uh, I, I think uh, another guy that I, I failed to mention who I talked to was a uh, Kurt Nymphius and he, uh, he had some, some funny stories to share about uh, some him and some of the, some of his teammates from his time in the eighties. That was a, that was a fun episode I did with him.
0: I'm impressed that you tracked down Kurt Nymphius. <laughs> uh,
1: he's living in uh, Arizona. Um, and sounds like he did pretty well investing in commercial real estate. And he says he's been retired for a while and just living and enjoying life in Arizona.
0: Well, good for him. He's definitely kept a low profile.
1: Yeah, I actually, I found him uh, on Facebook actually and I just sent him a message and i you know, it's a long shot, but he said, he was like, sure, I'd be happy to talk to you. And so we were able to set it up and it was a, it was a fun episode. Uh, he's uh, well,
0: you know, he came along when the, the thing, as I was saying before, the thing was to get as many big men as you could back then. Cause mm-hmm. the only way to win was to have a dominant center. And so Big Mata um, took a chance on him, six eleven, uh, really long lean body out of Arizona state. And, um, you know, he, he had some skills. He had um, a little bit of range, um, but he was a kind of an offbeat personality. He was just yeah. his own person. <laughs> he did, he did not fit. Most people's image of pro athlete, and I don't think it even occurred to him to think what a pro athlete is supposed to act like or, or be. He was just himself. And we went to a concert one time. It was a concert, at reunion, and um, I got two tickets. He was interested. And walking into the building with him, um, you know, that's a very different crowd than the Mavericks crowd. Seeing, mm-hmm. You know, a, a early mid-'80s rock concert. Uh, and those people were very aware of, oh my gosh, that's Kurt Nympheus. And so he's getting all <laughs> these shout outs from everybody who sees him and he's 6'11 and it's not hard to spot him, but, uh, that crowd knew immediately who he was. And so you would hear these shouts of, Mipho, all right. <laughs> and he back and kind of his fist and look back and pop it, um, you know, so he had he had a little bit of a cult following there um, in the uh, brief time he was uh, with Dallas, but definitely an interesting, amusing guy. <laughs>
1: that's uh, that's funny to hear. And I think I just got one last question for you, and it's usually how I like to end these conversations, whether I'm talking to a former player or uh, someone else affiliated with the Mavericks. It's a little bit of trivia. So I was trying to decide which season I wanted to ask you about. Either your first season calling games for the mavericks are your last i wanted to give you the choice but i wanted to see if you could name either all the mavericks from the 1981 1982 season or 87 88 but i got both lists in front of me
0: okay well uh, let's start with 87 88 you had uh mark McGuire, sam perkins james Donaldson, Derek harper Rolando Blackburn. you had roy tarpley brad davis uh, Detlef Shrimp, Bill Wennington, Uve Blob, that's 10. You also yep. had Steve two more and Jim yep. Farmer.
1: Yep. Jim, wow. Jim
0: Farmer and Steve Olford,
1: right? You nailed it. That's all of them. <laughs> that was perfect. That's right. easily the well, fastest.
0: Let me take a crack okay. at eighty-one, eighty-two now. Okay. Uh, so my first year you had, uh, Scott Lloyd, Jim Spadarkle, Brad Davis, Mark McGuire, Rolando Blackman, Jay Vincent, Elston Turner. Uh, now it's getting harder. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, now they're starting to drift away. Um, because, you know, that, that team made some transactions I remember, yeah. during the year.
1: You got six more. One of them, we okay. just well, talked about.
0: See. Yeah, okay, correct them to you. Yeah.
1: So five, yeah.
0: Oh, man. Wayne <laughs> Cooper hadn't come along yet. No, he
1: was there. Wayne, yeah, Wayne's on this list. He was, okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, Pat Cummings wasn't there yet. No, yeah, he's later. not on
1: this one. Yeah.
0: Um, Ollie Mack, was he still around?
1: Yep, he's there. That's one of them. So three more. Uh,
0: All right, let's see. I don't think Abdul Jelani was still around, was he?
1: No, he was not.
0: Jack Gibbons? Nope. Gone by then.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, man. (laughs) Uh, Bill Garnett came the next year. So, let's see. I'm probably short on big men,
1: aren't I? Yeah, definitely definitely a couple here. Um, Let me... I said Scott Lloyd, right? You said Scott Lloyd, yeah. Two centers and a and a small forward.
0: Centers and a small forward. Wow, I'm drawing blanks. Yeah, either uh, you Tom, player, give me some heads.
1: Tom Lagarde. Oh, Tom Lagarde. Tom Lagarde, of course. Alan Bristow. Yeah. Alan Bristow. Small and, forward. And uh, Clarence Key. It says power forward slash center on this list. Clarence
0: guy. Key from Lamar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He called everybody big guy. Yeah, He's nine inches tall is me, and he called me a big guy. Uh, <laughs> that's very okay. funny. Okay, well, yeah, that's um, that's that's going a little bit too far back. But yeah. now
2: yeah.
0: I've got vivid memories. I've got really good vivid memories of, of all those people. Uh, uh, that's awesome. So, yeah, that that was kind of a motley crew of some uh, expansion picks and some people that came from trade and some draft picks. I mean that that draft brought in Mark and Rowe and Jay and Elsa Turner, um, you know, find another draft where four starters came in two rounds. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But you could see, you know, the, the seeds being planted then, and they were learning big, modest system. Um, and they were trying to figure out and every once in a while, you know, they, they'd go get a win uh, eventually against Kareem's Lakers um, and Moses Malone and, and the Rockets. Uh, so yeah, that, you know, um, not all those people had long NBA careers, but they were all really fun to be around in their own way.
1: Well, uh, that, yeah, that's really cool to hear. And yeah, like I said, I've enjoyed talking to some of them and, uh, I keep thinking of someone else, I, someone else that I didn't mention, um, from the eighties, Dennis Nutt is I think the last eighties guy that I've done an episode with as well. So, Oh, ah, okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I bet he had some stories, too.
1: Yeah, he did. He did. He was a really good guy and enjoyed hearing his memories. And he's coaching college basketball down in uh, in Arkansas now. So things, things seem to be going pretty well for him and, and his program.
0: Well, maybe you could track down Steve Alford. And if you do, ask him about the – game where he returned as the conquering hero to Indiana when the Mavericks played the Pacers in Indianapolis. Ask him about um, running on in the quarter for that game.
1: (laughs) I'll have to do that. Yeah, I I tried to reach out to him and uh, I I found an email address I think um, maybe his UCLA one, but uh, got no response, which is how most of these things go, but I'm grateful for when people do respond and are uh, uh, willing to talk to me. I always enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that UCLA address has uh, been deactivated for Steve yeah, now. But yeah, yeah can, I think so. Hopefully you yeah. can track him down.
1: Yeah, that, that'd be a good one, and I'll be sure to ask him about that, that Pacers game. Well, thank you, Dave. You know, I enjoyed uh, hearing a little bit about your story, and, you know, you have a, a great memory f- from your time with the Mavs, and so uh, that's, uh, I really enjoyed you sharing it, and I appreciate you giving me your time tonight.
0: Well, thanks for letting me remember all this stuff. I really enjoyed it.
1: <laughs> all right, great. Well, you have a good night, and uh, I'll shoot you a link once I have it online.
0: Okay, look forward to it. All right, thanks
1: a lot. Okay, bye.